Well, hello and good day, marvelous people. What a privilege and honor to be with you once again. We've got an absolutely phenomenal episode of the show for you today. We have my friend back on the show, Mark Gober, and we are talking about an end to upside down liberty. This is a fantastic episode that I feel needs to be shared across the planet um, because Mark is a very brilliant guy, um, you know, has a history in, in Princeton and investment banking and doing all that kind of thing, and then kind of uh, woke up and wrote some some amazing books about like oh wow like life is a little bit different than i was taught and that i was trained and i was doing phenomenal work so you're gonna love this episode i highly recommend checking out all his books because uh they're they're fantastic and end upside down living um and so uh what do we talk about here we talk about his old world paradigm we talk about the institute of noetic scientists uh sciences we talk about erwin schrodinger the implications of near-death experiences uh why consciousness is limited karma and intent statism versus voluntar voluntarism is that how i say it i hope so uh, <laughs> divining what government actually is the stanford prison and experiment the principle of non-aggression uh, michael tellinger's ubuntu movement and the path to true liberty so this is a phenomenal episode as you know we're getting censored hardcore so please share this as far and as wide as you can um, pick up the book because it is a very important book and topic in these times um, i want to thank my sponsor the pure body extra so if you want to get some amazing heavy metal detox for just 13 bucks um they are hooking up my audience with that so go to the goodinside.com forward slash matt b m-a-t-t-b and you get a body of amazing heavy metal detox which i highly uh, recommend people check that out um if you want to support this show uh, patreon has deleted my account and they seem to not want to give it back so you can go to mattbelair.com become a member and if you can't afford that there's just some donations on there three bucks and six bucks and stuff like that but if you can't afford it just hit me up matt at zenathlete.com and i'm happy to give it to you for free my gift um, check out the quantum heart hypnosis and the uh, soul compass course and for those of you guys who really want to um, be around like-minded community you want to uh, figure out how to navigate these times with peace and also power and certainty and design your life on purpose and learn the tools to get over mental limitations, mental blocks, limiting beliefs, self-sabotaging patterns and all that kind of stuff that holds you back and move into peak performance and using all of these tools, uh, spiritual, esoteric and uh, performance wise to achieve the life that you want to be fulfilled and to make a difference here. If that is stuff that you want to do, I'd love to work with you and, and have you join the Atomic Alchemy Mastermind group so you can get access to Soul Compass and also one-on-one -on -one coaching with me. And so if that resonates with you, just hit me up, matt at zenathlete.com um, or mattbelair.com forward slash coaching. I would love to work with you. There are tons of tools and resources that are very simple and very effective. I only share the best tools of, you know, going through 500 podcasts and researching and doing all this kind of stuff. So you can make uh, amazing gains in your mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical life in a very short time. And there's something for everyone. So um, that's that. Um, as always, consider doing three kind acts uh, wherever you are in the world today. And let's come into a state of peace and coherence. Oh, I just want to talk about Telegram because deletions everywhere. So follow me on Telegram, t.me forward slash Matt Belair. Um, and yeah, would love to hear from you guys. So uh, if you're out there and you want to contact me for any reason, just matt at zenathlete.com because I had a few people say, you know, oh man, I can't believe I got a hold of you. 
you. You just need to send me an email. I would absolutely love to hear from you. Um, I appreciate you guys. And, um, you know, we, you know, be confident because we are going to win this. This is the great awakening. This is a very beautiful time to be alive. So let go of fear. If you're struggling with fear as well, hit me up because a lot of my coaching revolves around letting go of fear. So thank you so much for listening to the show. Let's come into a state of peace and coherence. Wherever you are in the world, just stop what you're doing. Take in a deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath and let it out slowly, filling every cell, every muscle, and every fiber of your being with peace, joy, confidence, enthusiasm, connection, fulfillment, and get ready to enjoy this absolutely phenomenal episode with Mark Gober. Hello and welcome to the Master Mind, Body, and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. As you know, we are currently overcoming extreme censorship, so sharing episodes far and wide is incredibly helpful. If you want to go to mattbelair.com and become a member by donation or for free, you can get all the episodes there as well. And most importantly, consider doing three kind acts wherever you are in the world today. Today's guest is an international speaker and the author of An End to Upside Down Thinking, which was awarded the IPPY Best Science Book of 2019. He is also the author of An End to Upside Down Living and An End to Upside Down Liberty and is the host of the podcast, Where Is My Mind? He currently sits on the board of the Institute of Noetic Sciences and the School of Wholeness and Enlightenment. He graduated magna cum laude from Princeton University. Welcome back to the show, Mark Gober. Matt, thank you for having me back. Man, it's so good to see you. I get an email from maybe your your agent or whatever the heck you got going on over there. And I see you've written a new book, which I'm like, yes, this is a great title. Stoked to talk about this. And then there was a book sandwich in between that I didn't know about. So, um, you know, it was awesome having you on the show, I think maybe three years ago. And, you know, you're doing great work and, you know, doing the podcast and all that kind of thing. And, you know, putting out two books in between and doing a lot of stuff. Um, it's just great to catch up. So I'd love for you to just share a little bit about your journey and uh, we'll dive into, yeah, some of the awesome stuff you're putting out there. Okay. Well, my background on the surface has nothing to do with what I've been writing and speaking about for the last few years. Um, as you mentioned, I went to Princeton and like a lot of my classmates, I went into investment banking. Um, a lot of people go into either investment banking or strategy consulting. It's a big feeder into those areas, among other places. But I said, okay, I'm going to do the investment banking route. And I graduated in 2008. So that meant I was in investment banking during the financial crisis. A really tough time to be there. Um, barely slept. I, I didn't enjoy the work itself, but it was like the next thing to do. So I did it. But um, I was looking for what I was going to do next. I knew it wasn't a long-term career path. So I ended up going to something that was a little bit similar to investment banking, but a little more out there and sounded interesting. Um, and I joined a firm in 2010 where I spent 10 years, became a partner there called Chirpa Technology Group, uh, where I was advising technology companies in basically every sector, but focusing on their intellectual property. So I got to look at inventions across all kinds of different industries, pretty interesting work. Um, and then also look at the legal strategy behind that, the business strategy, and, you know, that was my world. I was really focused on doing deals and we were helping companies uh, do their strategy, but also buy and sell assets. So it was, it was all consuming as well. But in 2016, things shifted for me in a big way. And I, and I talk about this more in my second book and end upside down living where I talk about my personal journey, but even leading up to that, there was a lot of like personal dissatisfaction. Um, 
where let's say a, a deal didn't go my way and I was super upset about it or just like in dating or something. And I, I didn't know how to like think about successes and failures in life because I thought life was meaningless. <laughs> I had this very nihilistic, materialistic worldview that there's no meaning to the universe. We're here, we, we exist because of a random biological process of billions of years of the universe of, of atoms colliding. Um, I happen to be here and my consciousness, my awareness comes from my brain. And then when my body dies, that's the end. And I wouldn't have said it all that way. <laughs> it's so depressing. But, <laughs> yeah. But Matt, that's actually the, that's the worldview I was taught, even though they wouldn't describe it that way. Like that's the way a lot of the people around me think and used to think. So I would go through life and like, I was so achievement focused in everything I did. I was competitive athlete, tennis player in college, and even before that. So I was always focused on achieving the next thing. And I would achieve them at some point. And then I was like on a treadmill where it almost, it didn't matter five minutes later. So I was, I guess I got to a point where I was at the, I realized I was on a treadmill and didn't know what to do about it. And, and my conclusion at the time was, well, this is just the world we live in and it's a random universe. So Mark, you just have to deal with it. I wasn't looking for another answer. Um, but I, I ended up finding one. So I don't know if that was the universe finding me somehow. I don't know how it happened. But this, what happened was I was listening to podcasts in 2016 because that was when they started to get a little bit bigger. And mostly they were on business and health topics. And I was listening to one on alternative health called Extreme Health Radio. And they interviewed a woman named Laura Powers. And it was just the next show in the queue. It wasn't like I was looking for this episode. And she started talking about how she had psychic abilities and left her career in higher education and like had a, a a politics masters or something. So she sounded pretty normal and was talking about using psychic abilities and working with energy and like pretty out there stuff. And they had a conversation for, I guess it was over an hour. I listened to the whole thing and it wasn't like my worldview shifted. And I said, oh my goodness, there's this other reality. It was just kind of like, oh, that's an interesting topic. I'm, I would like to learn more about that. So I ended up listening to Laura's podcast called Healing Powers. And over the course of maybe three weeks in August, September of 2016, I listened to all of her episodes from 2016 back to 2011. And I was driving from San Francisco down to Silicon Valley, lots of traffic. So I had podcast time. And I realized at that point, because I heard so many different voices describe a similar picture of reality that I had, I was not accustomed to, something hit me. And I was like, oh no, I, I need to figure this out because if there's any reality <laughs> to what they're saying, then everything I thought was true is not true. And that's where it started for me because then I wanted to research. So I was working and I, it was such a disorienting period for me because I, I was lost in life. I wasn't sure career-wise what I wanted to do exactly. Like I just didn't know where I was headed. And then I was being confronted with this new worldview. And most people around me, if not everyone around me, like friends and family, wouldn't even know how to respond to what I was talking about. Like topics like reincarnation and telepathy and tying it to quantum physics. That's the kind of stuff I was doing. So I ended up just continuing to research and a year later, so the summer of 2017, I said, I'm gonna put this down on paper and write a book. So that was my first book and End Upside Down Thinking. We talked about that in 2018 when it was published. Um, and then it, I produced a podcast series where I interviewed many of the scientists that I wrote about in my first book. So that was in 2019, um, again, about these topics like near-death experiences and con the continuation of consciousness beyond the body. Then at the end of 2019, um, after my podcast came out, still at my firm, became, had become a partner, and I got to the point where I, I just was not being, I wasn't pulled by the work anymore. So it was a really tough position to be in because I was a partner at the firm. I had lots of responsibilities, not only with my clients, but other people at our company. And I was just, it, it like, it took too much energy for me to do even basic things at the job. Whereas 
all I wanted to do was research these stacks of books I have everywhere and I didn't have enough time for it. And I wanted to listen to more podcasts. So I, I had a discussion with my, my business partners and said, look, this is not, I, I, I can't do this anymore, which was a very hard thing to do after spending so many years with them. And it, I was in a great spot professionally. If I had looked back years ago and said, hey, Mark, this is the position you're going to be in, in your early 30s. I would have thought that was a crazy move to just leave and not have anything lined up for what's next, but it felt like it was the right thing. So I left, um, went on some extended meditation retreats uh, for the first time ever, which were, those were amazing. And then we started locking down. So my second book came about actually in between two meditation retreats in early 2020 and ended upside down living. And I wrote about the spiritual awakening process. So not only just thinking about the science behind consciousness, but how would we then orient our compass for living life? And the question that I ask in the book is, what is the overall intention of your life? And I seek to answer that question for myself based on like building up a view of reality. And then I kept researching. So that came out in 2020 and watching what was happening with the pandemic and seeing a lot of, uh, I'll say a lack of truth everywhere. <laughs> I, it became clear there were lots of other things that I needed to learn. And so I ended up writing a third book at End Upside Down Liberty, which looks at how to optimally organize society. So it's political and economic theory, but also tied to the metaphysical part. And that's where we are today. Man, what an amazing ride. Well, it sounds like you're the man for the job for, um, you know, really thinking about our society um, you know, using, let's say the old paradigms, the way that I think naturally, like you talk about your world and how you grew up and, you know, that paradigm shift would have been huge, right? Saying, oh, shoot, if this is real, I have to rethink everything. Um, and a lot of people on, let's say my side were maybe you're more like, I thought about, mm, you know, meditation and spiritual and esoteric, but I'm not naturally as grounded, right? I'm not going to be as logical. I'm not good with numbers. I'm not good with sequence and all that structure. So to bring those two worlds together, is you know the yin and yang it's both and i think that you and the way that you think things or think through things and see it and analyze it because you're not just believing it because someone says it you're saying well how can we uh like i'll give it the benefit of the doubt how do we how do we prove it how do we verify it how do we find out more information how do we have a conversation about it how do we um listen to people's experiences and and really dive in so i think it's a very powerful framework for you know even understanding the scientific method and how we have uh an ideal life an ideal society an ideal way of living and and um, worldviews that empower us. And so, you know, you're talking about these frameworks, which I think are amazing. And you um, now are on the board of Noetic Sciences, uh, which is very interesting. Dean Radin was on and uh, I'm blanking on who else was was on. He was so far back. He was he was a part of it as well, doing those random number generator experiments, talking about the noosphere, one of the- uh, Roger Nelson. That's the one. Yep. So uh, very interesting. And it's how do we bring the science to this unified field or ether? And so do you want to talk a little bit about noetic sciences for a minute? And then we'll dive yeah. into a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It was founded in uh, the 1970s. So it's been around for a while. And what drew me to it? Well, number one, it's, it's in the Bay Area. So when I was living there, it was an easy uh, ride to the campus. Uh, but I, my, my first book in particular was a lot about the science of psychic phenomena, the science of the survival of consciousness after the, the body dies, those kinds of topics. Some people call it non-local consciousness, which is an idea that's completely crazy and outlandish and not even allowed to be discussed in most of the academic world. But there are a few places where you can talk about this stuff. So the University of Virginia has a division of perceptual studies, which has been around since the 60s. And they study children who have past life memories and near-death experiences. So that's one exception to the rule. But otherwise, um, it's, it's mostly one-off scientists. 
And there's the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which is an independent institute that studies all this stuff in, an, in a rigorous way. So Dean Radin is the chief scientist there, and um, it's just fascinating work. So for me to be involved in getting to see how the science is done and think about how to get the word out to the, to the rest of the world, that's what drew me to it. That's amazing. And, you know, when you talk about your worldview, you know, the, it seems to me anyway, we're moving more and more and there's an agenda toward this robotic way of living, right? When you describe that to me, it seems like there is no meaning. Yeah. You're not special. You're, you're cogs in a wheel rather than a spiritual being right? And we look at nature and how that works. And that brings like a presence and a warmth and also um, a purpose and a fulfillment. It's like, okay, well, if I'm a spiritual being, what is my purpose here, right? Everything becomes more important because that's really where we can really get lost is, you know, I'm meaningless. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm here to just, you know, suck it up and do whatever society tells me. And there's another fundamental belief in that. It's like, um, you know, you're kind of creating your life by default where you're, you're, you're aiming, right? So you go through university and then you get this investment banking job, right? And you were at the, the pinnacle, right? I'm an investment banker. I graduated Princeton as on tennis team as a captain, you know, and then you're like, oh crap, this isn't working. Right. Similar to when Jim Carrey or others will say, you know, I wish everyone could be rich and famous so they they could know that that's not the answer. Right. It's not like those perks and the wealth and the freedom that comes with it isn't fantastic. Um, it's that's going to uh, dry up. Right. If you had all the money and wealth in the world, all the material experiences, eventually you're going to be hollow if you don't have anything of substance to understand who you are. And so um, maybe you can speak to that a little bit for those people out there who are or what if what did you learn in that transition? I think that's so powerful, right? Because some yeah. people are really they want to know what's going on and they're very analytical. How how did you start to find your compass and navigate towards more meaning and have the uh, ability and strength to let go of that high position that you wanted because something felt off and you honored that and so you let it go to go see what the next thing was. Yeah, it's a great question. And this has really been my journey, what you just asked. And it's, a, it's a, on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm still thinking about that. What, you know, how am I going to continue going in a direction that's fulfilling and meaningful? Because like you said, I, I was in a position where logic told me and science told me and the experts told me that life is inherently meaningless. We can create meaning if we want to, but that's just a rationalization because it's temporary. It's temporary meaning. There's nothing like built into the fabric of the universe that, mean, that, that says that Matt Belair has a meaningful life. That's the implication if you follow the way they look at the world. So I want to describe that worldview in a little more granularity uh, because it's the basis for a lot of what we'll discuss. And some will call it scientific materialism. Others call it physicalism. The basic idea is that the universe is fundamentally made of material stuff. And it's from material stuff when you have lots of random reactions of pieces of matter um, and chemical reactions, you end up with biological organisms who develop organs like a brain. And the brain, as they would say, spawns or, or is what's producing our consciousness. So consciousness is, it's a tough word to actually define because we can't touch it. It's really abstract. We all experience it, but we don't, I, I can't point to it. Uh, so consciousness is our sense of experiencing life. That's a way to think about it. So it's something that anyone listening to this conversation right now has a consciousness that's absorbing um, this, this moment. And consciousness is where that's the crux of like everything that I've been exploring because the materialist view says consciousness comes from the material world and more specifically it comes from a brain. 
my whole first book and podcast series, it's about dispelling that myth and saying, no, it's the other way around. Consciousness is fundamental and everything material, all the chemistry and bi biology, they exist, but they exist within consciousness. And that's the upside down thinking. It's not matter to consciousness, it's consciousness to matter. Um, and even Max Planck, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, he said, I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. That's exactly the idea that we're talking about. So then it gets to your question, well, what are the implications of that? If you believe scientific materialism that you're just a body temporarily here, and when your brain turns off, it's like you shut off a computer that's done, no memories anymore, then you, you can't find real meaning. You can only find temporary meaning. And it, it's, it's subjective. It's whatever you want it to be at the time. And that can lead to all kinds of problems with morality for people coming up with their own morality. And if there's, if there's nothing compelling people at a more cosmic level to, to be a good person, that explains a lot of problems we have in the world today. Even, even though not every single person would, would be susceptible to that. Like I've, I felt still a compulsion to be a good person. I don't think if I look back at myself, I wouldn't say that I was a bad person. I still wanted to like be nice to everyone. I wanted to be honest but I didn't, I didn't see a, a greater cosmic purpose behind it. Um, whereas if we look at this other framework where consciousness is fundamental, uh, the term that I like to use is the one mind and it's based off of Erwin Schrodinger, the Nobel prize winning physicist. He said, in truth, there is only one mind. It's such a simple way of saying it, that there's one mind, but uh, using an analogy from Dr. Bernardo Castro, it's like we are whirlpools within a stream. <laughs> so we have the sense of being individuals, but we're interconnected as part of this one mind. That's the way I think about it. So, okay, well, if I'm part, if I'm a whirlpool within the one mind stream, I'm not just a, a hunk of, of matter that's gonna, like a computer that's gonna turn off. Is there something deeper to it? And I mean, a lot of the science, this is why I'm so interested in the science behind like telepathy and all these things, because it points to the reality uh, of all this, that consciousness is, is way beyond our bodies. But in particular, the near-death experience is worth talking about upfront because some of the implications from that are just completely life-changing. So the near-death experience is an instance where a person's brain is either completely off or like barely functioning. And yet the person has this elaborate experience. They come back in their body and they say, what happened? And the doctor says, you're crazy. That's not possible because look, we know what your brain was doing. But in some cases, what they come back, the person will come back upon being resuscitated and they'll say, no, no, I saw you from above my body and you were doing X, Y, and Z in the room. And they're like, no, 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 how did you know that? <laughs> and those cases, they're known as veridical out-of-body experiences, meaning what the person saw is verified as accurate. That's important because it's not a hallucination. By definition, if it's accurate, it's not a hallucination. If it's not a hallucination, that means that there's a highly functioning consciousness at a time when the brain uh, shouldn't be capable of making that <laughs> kind of cognition. So when I interviewed Dr. Bruce Grayson from the University of Virginia, he said, we're left with this paradox that at a time when the brain isn't functioning, the mind is functioning better than ever. That's exactly what happens. You, the brain is actually holding back our consciousness in many ways. And we, it's like a filter and we liberate it. We see this broader reality. So what do people see in this broader reality? They talk about often being immersed in unconditional love. They sometimes see deceased relatives or they see mystical beings. And in 20 to 25% of the cases, they have a life review where they relive their whole life in a flash. And not only do they just relive the events, but they, they see it through the eyes of the people that they impacted. So they get to feel the pain that they inflicted upon someone, or if they brought joy to that person, they get to feel it through that person. So for my podcast, I interviewed Daniel Brinkley, among other people who've had near-death experiences, but he's had four 
And each time he had a life review that he remembers. So he told me about his, his reliving his combat days in Vietnam and what it was like to, he said he was vicious in combat and he felt the deaths of the people that he killed through their eyes. So he felt that pain. And not only that, but he felt the indirect effects. So he felt what it was like to be children who would no longer have fathers because he had killed their fathers in combat. He said it wasn't quite as strong a feeling, but I could tell it was difficult for him to even discuss it because it was just such a painful experience. He had to relive four times. Uh, but on the flip side, he got to see his own evolution because he had late near-death experiences later in life. And when he came back from his early near-death experience, he became a hospice volunteer, became way less materialistic, his whole life changed. So when he, in his later life reviews, he got to see what it was like from the perspective of the dying person in the hospice bed as, as Danny and himself was comforting them. So I mentioned all this because it, 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 this points to real meaning embedded into reality itself. And what Dr. Grayson from UVA has found in interviewing many people who've had these experiences is that it's beyond morality. He says it's a natural law. That's the way it's described, that this reciprocity of basically um, we're, we're trying to evolve toward a state of unconditional love. But when that's breached, we experience that ourselves. And so that changes everything in terms of how you would live life, because then priorities shift and values shift. If that's how you think about things, if what really matters is not what kind of job you have, what kind of car you have, if everything is registered within this one mind of consciousness and what seems to matter is, is how much joy can we bring to people, how unconditionally loving can we be as an aspiration, then that, that brings, that changes everything. Mark, that was friggin' phenomenal, man. I loved every bit of how you worded that and uh, the experiences. You know, there's so much that you brought up when you were sharing that, you know, the doc, the work of uh, Dawson Church from Mind to Matter. And uh, this, for me, coming from a martial arts perspective of creating reality, and even you would have a sense of this from being an athlete of knowing yeah. like what you want to do with the ball and how you are creating that. So then all of a sudden you have this little seed that knows, well, my consciousness does affect how I play and how I'm, how I'm operating here. And so I think sport is a really uh, great gateway to kind of see how we influence reality through our consciousness. Um, and I really love the end of beyond morality into natural law. And that makes me kind of think about, you know, this free will universe we're in and, and why this is so meaningful. And if, if, if there indeed is an agenda to make us think these things, because I have heard of, you know, one of my backgrounds of people who listen to the podcast know this is I didn't know why we had war and starvation. So I started to look into that. It didn't make any sense. It went away and everything that I understood and felt as a human, why are we having mass war? Why are we having mass starvation? Why are there these horrific things going on when that's the last thing that I want to do or experience or, or promote? And you learn about these ideologies and, and people and worldviews that think differently. You know, I've heard of worldviews before that they think if that if you take away all morality, then you can do anything you want to a man or a woman. Right. And I've heard like, you know, in interviews with people like Rockefeller and a few other people, you know, kind of just say these things and, you know, see people as, you know, you know, lesser than or, or, or moving the morality. And that's kind of like the spirit and also going into the weird stuff. Um, I've been aware that these people want to remove the ghost in the machine, remove the spirit. So we become more like a robot. So through education, through worldview, through medication, and even Rudolf Steiner said uh, in the early 1900s, they will produce a vaccine that will drive out the spirit of all men. How would he know that in the 1900s or understand that agenda if they weren't speaking about it, right? And so why would people do this? And, you know, I, um, 
but Alex Sakaris wrote a book, Why Evil Matters, How Science and Religion Flubbed a Big One. And that's a hard understanding for a good person to understand why people would architect this worldview. And that's where, you know, on the flip side of that, when we have free will, and you talk about beyond morality into natural law, and when your consciousness, you know, which is limited, right? And, and that's such a great way to frame it because, you know, I can only operate this Zoom chatting with you, maybe drinking this water and listening to you at the same time, right? I can't do that much at once with my consciousness, drive my car, maybe have some random thoughts. So it's, it's really narrowed. But when you go into meditation or you have an out-of-body experience or you have um, something greater, you realize that there is this infinite energy consciousness and connection and you're a part of that and alan watts will say like a drop in the ocean right and i, lo I love that analogy is like you are the entire ocean but the drop separate is like oh, okay so with that understanding uh, i'm basically saying the same thing you said but with that understanding then it becomes a spiritual universe yeah. then what you do matters then not only are you choosing in this mystery and i think it has to be a mystery otherwise we don't have that free will choice to do the right thing, the moral thing, um, to honor that gut or inside voice that we have that knows between right and wrong and make that choice versus, oh, I'm going to ignore that because none of this matters. Do you want to comment on that? That's kind of how yeah. I Yeah. Yeah. That's how I think about it too. And I, there's also the notion of karma, which is kind of, we're both alluding to it in many ways, but I think that's a really important way of thinking about just like prioritizing what we do and making decisions. And the idea of karma in a simplistic sense is that there are consequences to our actions, that there's some kind of a balancing force in the universe. Although I'm somewhat hesitant to even talk about karma because it's probably so complex that we in a conversation won't even get close to understanding what it actually is. But this general idea that there is, there is intelligence in the universe, what we do matters, then it's just gonna influence how we make each decision in our lives, both from the perspective of wanting to help other people because we're all interconnected. And at some level, we are all the same. So in my second book, um, I, I use this term, the absolute perspective versus the relative perspective. The absolute perspective being the, the, the one stream, the one mind, where we are literally the same. There's no distinction. But we don't operate at that level when we are having this conscious conversation. We operate at the relative, where it seems like we're separate. And the paradox is that they coexist. <laughs> These things exist at the same time. And appreciating that those paradoxes exist in the universe, I think is super important because it's easy to get caught in an either or mentality and not understand that there's like, there could be things happening that seem to contradict each other, but actually don't con contradict each other at a different lens. Yeah. I, well, I love that idea. It's like that uh, image they show sometimes where they go, this is a square, this is a circle. And then, um, then this is the truth. And it just kind of shows the shadows yeah. on how from one perspective with more information, the paradox gets resolved where yeah. there can be two truths. And, and that's, you know, again, a, being in this mystery and having a little bit of faith and the karma idea is interesting. And, you know, with everything that's going on in the world, and we discussed this a little bit at the beginning, it seems often that what we're taught is incorrect. And I really went down the rabbit holes of spirituality and these spiritual teachings and say, okay, which one's the right one, right? Uh, which is which is the right God? Which is the right faith? Which is the right way to live? Which is the most spiritual on the spiritual scoreboard? And going to the Parliament of World Religions and seeing over 200 uh, religions or philosophies or frameworks represented. And so 
you know, whether it's like our material reality um, and all the things that go with it and, and, and what's going on here and what's possible or the uh, metaphysical reality, we don't know that much. And I've kind of come right now. I'm sure there's more. If you think of one, let me know. But we know what we can do. So I was like, okay, we know if I, if I know I can, um, you know, do a kickflip on my skateboard, I can do that or make a sandwich. I can do that. I know that. So I know what I can do. Um, but other than that, the only thing I really know is my intent. And I feel like that can maybe go into the karma because if from that higher view, my intent was good and it caused harm. And when I realized that I, my intent was to resolve that or help it. If I had the opportunity from that higher picture, maybe the universe at play is helping something out that like you didn't do, but if you're going around and you have either, um, you know, malice intent or you're kind of a atheist where nothing matters, right? Maybe you're causing harm through ignorance or ig uh, ignorance, you know, because yeah. you don't want to connect to that thing. And so from that intent, I feel like that's where it would make sense to me. Our karma would be linked. What do you think? Yeah, of that? that's how I think about it, too. Of course, not knowing exactly how the universe works. My understanding is that the way we... <laughs> <laughs> not yet not yet anyway not not with your know. brain I, noetic soon soon to come next book <laughs> i haven't gotten there yet but i think about it the same way matt in my own life is like what's my intention behind this but i but i i reverse engineer my intention of like what am i why am i doing this really what, what's behind that and my understanding is that especially in life reviews all that stuff is picked up like true intentions and um there's an all-knowing field of intelligence that we're a part of but one of the other paradoxes that's built into what we we're just discussing is this idea of we're the collective. We are, we are literally the collective at one level, but another level we're individuals. And so when we, we set our intentions, it's important to recognize that we're both and that to ignore yourself as an individual is, is a, I think a spiritual problem because you're part of the whole stream. You're part of the one mind. So if you ignore yourself and say that all that matters is just the collective, I can ignore every all of my basic needs um that that doesn't make sense either and i mention that because i feel like in political discussions but also in spiritual discussions the pendulum can swing so far in the direction of a pure collectivism which is part of the picture just the idea that, that all that matters is the collective at the expense of the individual that can be a, a big problem for setting our individual compasses too because we have, to, we have to protect ourselves individually so that we can be of service. If we don't protect ourselves and take care of ourselves, then we can't, be as, we can't serve the collective as much and you need both. Yeah, that's a really great comment. And, you know, I see it as the middle way, right? In Zen and yeah. Buddhism, they'll kind of talk about that. And so, and looking at which way they swing and they might swing for in one direction for a period of time, but also having that conscious recognition of it, you know, and, you know, I've been guilty of that, you know, a lot of my life where I'd focus on the podcast or helping other people or volunteering, or I would do so many calls and my partner's like, why are you always doing these for free? And I was like, well, they need my help. Uh, but meanwhile, after I had my daughter and we needed to provide for the family and things like that, nothing that I did was like kind of business or in a receiving way. Right. So having to kind of reorient and think, okay, I'm going to need to do things where I receive a bit and I can't just own only give because all of a sudden you have nothing less. So just kind of analyzing that and, and balancing the two. But um, for me, it's like, you know, that intent of how can my work and business and life offer some sort of um, help to the collective. And that's where prayer and intent, you know, like, you know, God or creator, show me the way to, um, you know, be who I am and contribute to the world or please guide me, please guide me and show me a way to, uh, you know, uh, 
live through you or whatever the case is, whatever, like the Tao or the ether or whatever this big thing, like when you, when you go to sleep, your body breathes you, 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 what, it, what keeps you alive? You could say the functions of each individual thing, um, right in your breath, but you know, something is keeping you alive. And when you have near death experiences, which I think I've had like one, two, three, four, shit, like five or six. <laughs> Mine were different where like it was a gun to my head Whoa. and Mount Everest and almost falling off a cliff a couple of times, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. You know, like um, I know, I know <laughs> that I'm here until that bigger thing wants to take me home. Right. And yeah. I remember the, the one that I had uh, in Sedona, we got stuck on a cliff face and I basically had to process my death because I had to get back down and I'm short and it was really precarious. And if I fell, I was falling back about 15 feet to a really uh, steep slant. And then I was shooting off. Like there's no way I was stopping. So the likelihood of, of death was very good. And um, you know, myself and my, unfortunately my partner was trapped too. So uh, we ended up getting down and it was terrifying because I had to do the leap of faith. There's no way out of the situation and luckily it was okay. But at that point when I was like, okay, maybe my, the flash was maybe my work is done. And I was like, huh, that was a really weird thought to have because I didn't choose it. And my partner was like, uh, she wished she had done a lot of different things. And when we were discussing it and ever since I've been, you know, cause you went the university route and yeah. all these different things, because you had a map of the world that was shown to you. Um, luckily for me, I had good parents that said, you know, follow your heart. And I had a strong inclination of who am I? What's my purpose? What am I meant here to do? And I would always ask and journal these questions. And the only distinction between us was I continually asked that and took the leap of faith and did that thing. What's next? You know, what do I want to learn? Who am I really? You know, what's important to me? And going through that value set and then doing the best I can because it's a continuous evolution. And so, you know, when we're, when we're navigating our lives, there's nothing certain. Even if you take the certain path, right? That job might explode. And I've watched my friends go through this, try to take the certain path, right? But they're not looking for the meaningful path or the fulfilling path or the one that's uniquely theirs. And I feel like that's how we honor our life is becoming fully who we are and having trust and faith in this balance of this greater thing. Because if you fully develop who you are as an individual by your own standards and definitions and values and your, your, your uniqueness, that gift is the greatest gift to the collective, right? So like uh, um, Van Gogh, for example, going through the Van Gogh Museum was amazing. You know, never made any money in life as an artist. His brother helped him out, all this kind of stuff. But his art inspires for generations to look at the level of mastery possible through art and through, you know, how he was trying to bring the spirit of man into paint. That's timeless, Right. So he honored. So he's not going up there being like, oh, man, really wish I went back and started that art school and, you know, went back to do business and finance like he honored the life force, the breath that was within him. So that's a rant. Do you want to comment on that? I'm just getting lost. In yeah. <laughs> well, what you're describing is, is it's similar to an analogy that I've used in my books. The idea that we're part of a cosmic puzzle and each of us is a unique puzzle piece. And our task is to embody that puzzle piece as much as we can as an individual so that we can be part of the collective puzzle. So like figuring out what we need to do in our lives to best embody that puzzle piece is critical. And for each of us, it's going to be different. That's why it's so difficult, especially in like looking at different spiritual traditions and spiritual pathways and practices for each person. It might be that they need it. Like there's a different recipe for them. And when, when people ask me, I'm always very, I try to be open-minded about it because what worked for me might not work for someone else. And that might be by design. So it's really trying to figure out where 
we feel drawn to something where our passions are and also where our passions are not. I mean, that's what happened to me in my job because we could probably make an argument, Matt, that I could have stayed in my job, that it could have been great financially to keep me on a certain track and I could do this other stuff on the side. And we probably could have rationally come up with a reason for me to stick in the position. And maybe for some people, it was the right thing to do. But for me, it was it was not. And I don't know exactly why, but I was too pulled in another direction. I don't know where it's going to lead me next. I mean, it's led to two books, but I don't know what, what that means or what could be next. So we just really have to listen to ourselves. And I say that now and emphasize it now because we're in a world where there's such a, a mob mentality of just do this because someone said it's for the common good and it doesn't matter what your individual needs are. That's a very dangerous mentality where if you had someone who's manipulative at the top coming up with this idea that is good for the collective, that leads to atrocities. And we've seen that with governments throughout the world for a long time. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I'm glad that you um, shared that uh, the cosmic puzzle piece. That's amazing. And when you can come up with analogies that kind of frame these things, that's I feel a demonstration of the understanding. So uh, I think that's a really beautiful analogy. I've kind of taken us on a side note, which I think was helpful. Um, so now we're already at, uh, we're, we're at the upside down of Liberty. Right. And so I just did a law summit. So I, I think you look at the podcast, but understanding law. And one of the things that I found out was God created man, man. Um, and God gave uh, dominion to land, air and water to man law. And so under that, uh, man created the government to administer the rights, our property and all these different things. Um, right. But what happened is corporations and government created corporations, corporations usurp the government through money and finances and mammon and, and deception. And then now the government is trying to tell us what we can and can't do. Right. And giving us liberty on the land as free beings. Like no one's doing this to squirrels or owls or, you know, raccoons, uh, although we are doing other horrible things with it. But that, that aside. Um, so, you know, I love the book and I'm going through, you know, your sections here and I'd love to see if we can address them all, but you know, how does the go uh, government threaten liberty uh, government as organized crime, which to me, it is the dangerous psychology and the mind control. So all of these are, are pieces and maybe you want to, we'll, we'll go by section to section yeah. and to kind of discuss what you feel is most relevant. Sure. Well, the, the book looks at sort of like in my first one, where I looked at scientific materialism versus, you know, consciousness is fundamental in this book and upside down liberty. I'm looking at the principle known as statism versus an alternative, which is sometimes called voluntarism. So I'll just quickly explain what those mean, um, because I, I honestly, I didn't know, I didn't know really anything about politics until I started researching this. And I didn't care about politics until the pandemic, because all of a sudden government decisions had a big impact on my life and the lives of other people around us. And governments got to decide whose businesses were essential and whose weren't and many other things. So all of a sudden we're being micromanaged in a much more obvious way. So I, I began following very closely and it led me to look at this fundamental thing. Well, we live under a government. What is that? What is, uh, what, is this, what is government exactly? And statism is the idea that we should live under a government. But what, is, what does government mean? And the way, and there, there are different definitions for this depending on who you talk to. And a lot of what I did in my book, I referred to um, the Austrian School of Economics from Ludwig von Mises, M-I-S-E-S. -E and there's a Mises Institute, which has lots of great videos. M-I-S-E-S. -E um, but Murray Rothbard was part of this, this group who was a political economist. Um, and the way he defines the state is, I'm paraphrasing here, is the only organization in society that obtains its revenue, not through voluntary exchanges, but through coercion. Meaning, give us your money or you're going to jail. That's not a voluntary exchange. Whereas if, if 
let's say you want to go buy an apple at a store, Matt, you can go buy an apple. You can, you can say, I'm going to pay for this. I want this. Whereas, for example, with taxation, it's not like you get to say where you want all your money to go. You don't get to select all the different causes. It goes to this big thing. Um, but so then, well, what is, how is government different than uh, like a typical service provider? Because what is government really? It, it provides services. It, there's security, there's legal functions. There's lots of stuff that it does. But like Netflix provides services too. Gyms provide service. There's lots of businesses out there. But government seems to have this special privilege in the way that it provides services in terms of the way it obtains revenue. It can basically just say this, this is the tax rate and you're going to pay it. And it's going to go where we want it to go. Uh, but we also don't have an explicit contractual relationship in the same way that we would have with a typical service provider. Like what I would see in business, we, if we had an, uh, a new client or just anything, any, any deal that we're working on, there's specific terms about what the service provider is going to deliver. We're going to deliver these things to you. And if we don't, these are the penalties. There can be termination. You can go to something else. With government, we don't have that. We have this more of, a, of an implied consent. Uh, but it's not it's not laid out in the way that you would expect from other service providers. So we're left in this situation where when you start to evaluate what the government actually is, it's a much more unilateral position than you would than I was trained to think in school, for example. But even so this one really got me when I started getting into it. Like the rationale for why we have government is if we didn't have a government, then people are too ir irrational and stupid and warlike that they would just kill each other and there would be complete chaos. So we can't do it. So what we're going to do to prevent that is we're going to take a subset of those people who are stupid and irresponsible and warlike, and we're going to put them in this position of power. But don't worry about it. We, out of nowhere, we are going to be responsible enough to know which people should be in that position of power. <laughs> right? So there are lots of these things that start to, they don't add up. And just as very quickly, we'll get into this later. I talk about an alternative to this, which is to turn, you can, we can have all the government services, they're important services for society, but make them real service providers in a free market where if you don't do a good job, guess what? You have financial accountability and people are gonna to go to a competitor and that would spawn entrepreneurship and, and much more liberty, which is um, voluntarism, where your interactions are voluntary and it's all about um, non-aggression against private property, which we can get into. That's amazing. Well, again, I love how you are able to break these things down in a way that is, uh, is masterful, you know, very important to get right to the root because uh, the more we understand about the functions and what they do, the more we can kind of pick it apart and then, and then see what works and then disregard what doesn't and then find a solution, which your, your solution there was uh, very simple and uh, uh, makes sense. And so, well, let's look at... Um, a little bit there's because there's so much stuff here you talk about uh, organized crime which it kind of is because you're saying it's not voluntary right and, and we have to accept and we're taught that right and even right. when you look at you know if, when i did the law summit with christopher gronsky and all these guys they say if you go into the taxes they say they are voluntary but it's under terrible coercion where if you um don't pay them then you can go to jail forever and we can take your liberty away um you know and so then it kind of is but it's not not really and even when you push back on these fines and what i'm learning about the courts is they're you know basically supporting the government as well and the bar association and the government's all on the same team with the banks and they're so they're all in this you know system where they're not doing a great job with their goods and services so they're basically coercing their business from us and we're all getting fleeced more and more from the system, which is kind of a, a bummer. Um, talk a little bit about the, the dangerous psychology or mind control from what you researched. 
So the, the dangerous psychology that I refer to, and I talk about this a lot in the book, is, is the danger of putting people in positions of power. What that does, it actually can change people. So there's a famous experiment called the Stanford Prison Experiment done in the 1970s, and it hasn't been replicated. There are ethical questions with it. But basically, they had 12 people who were, who were acting as prison guards and 12 people acting as prisoners. And the prison guards became so cruel, they had to end the study early. The, the power transformed these people. Um, so I mentioned that because here we are, we're creating a power structure that no matter what, it's going to have revenue. It can do the worst job ever. It's still going to have taxes. If it has a central bank, it can print money out of nowhere. It can create, it, it will have funds regardless of what it does. And then you have this, these people who are in positions of power who might actually be, they might be good people to start with, um, but you can be corrupted. So that's one piece that's important. I also talk about obedience to authority as a way of, of basically promulgating this evil from a position of power. Uh, I talk about Milgram's studies where people are, um, this was 1970s, um, were, were, so you had two people in the room. One was a paid actor and the other one was basically asking questions and the paid actor, uh, if, they, if he got it wrong, the other person was supposed to shock him, okay? But the paid actor would make these whole, like, like scream in pain as the voltage went higher and higher, even though he wasn't actually being shocked. And the main finding of the study is that the experimenter, the authority figure would say, no, you gotta keep shocking him, he got that wrong. And he would, the person would do it. They would repeatedly do it because the authority figure said you should do it. Um, that's very important because that's, you could see in a political structure where you have a few people who are not so good, they could coerce people into just obeying. And then lastly, I talk about psychopaths, which is an important phenomenon to understand because these are people, this is a psychological phenomenon that's known who fundamentally do not have empathy. And most of us can't understand what it would be like to be that kind of a person. And because of that, we can't envision the level of evil that someone would be willing to enact but also that level of evil loves power for reasons that we can't understand. So you have this like perfect storm where you create this organized criminal enterprise effectively, even though it might do some good things sometimes, but that's structurally, it's not a normal service provider where you know that people are gonna become more, they're gonna become worse. Uh, psychology tells us if you put them in a position of power and you've created a magnet for potential psychopaths to have more and more power and history has shown that dictators will emerge. So the way we should have structured it is, will it inherently lead to bad things, which we're seeing now in the world. That's amazing. Well, it sounds like you figured out the government absolutely perfectly um, <laughs> and, are, and are able to describe the why. Uh, man, that's brilliant. So I'd love for you to kind of go, because you go um, linear, linearly here, which is great. Um, what is the alternative to traditional government, non-aggression, uh, private property rights, free markets, uh, privatizing government functions? When I interviewed Christopher Gronsky for the law summit, one of the things that he was suggesting is that, um, you know, the most power comes from your community, right? And then it dwindles the further out you you get. And, you know, the idea of how people would think that this would work is, or when I thought about it anyways, was like, okay, these are supposed to be public servants to be what an honor to serve your community, right? But but those people aren't getting elected. And it's like you said, it's it, 
we have a kind of broken system fundamentally where it should be an honor to support your community. You are a public servant. And if you're not doing a good job, um, you should be removed by your peers. And, and a lot of us have kind of fallen asleep and just allowed this to happen and recognize these are public servants that can be held accountable that we need to kind of switch things up. So do you want to move on to section two and talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, I think what you described is it's what we're taught in school. It's what the civics books tell us about what a politician should be. And that's probably by design that the education system is a way to reinforce statism as a benevolent force, that it's this thing that we need in society. We need to have the safety net that's going to be there to protect us. Uh, but in reality, the way I, I think economics shows us is that you, when you have a competitive market, you're going to have many more corrective mechanisms. Uh, but first, I want to talk about like this fundamental principle of non-aggression. And the reason um, I emphasize that so much is that it aligns with spiritual principles. And that's what I try to do in this book, is I take like these are traditional political and economic ideas we're talking about and combine it with the metaphysics and things like the life review. Non-aggression principle is completely aligned spiritually. The idea is you don't initiate aggression against any, any person, like their body or their property. So aggression could be physical violence, it could be coercion, extortion, fraud, things like that. But you have a right to defend yourself. Every, if someone, everything the government does. <laughs> everything it does. So Matt, that's my, that's my argument. I say, if you want to abide by the non-aggression principle, it, it rules out government by definition because it, it only exists because it initiates aggression. It rules out the government as we currently do it. So I agree with you. Um, that's just, that's a, it's, state, it's state of being. So, but if we acted this way, uh, followed the non-aggression principle, then you would have a very diverse voluntary society. Not that it would be perfect. I don't see this happening tomorrow. I'm, I'm trying to paint a vision for like what would be ideal. And I, I'm very clear that it's theoretical because we're in a different place right now. Um, but if it would allow people to have different types of communities, if you'd wanna be more by yourself, you could be because you could just subscribe to whatever services you want to, you could end up having an entity that looks a lot like government that maybe has the same services, but it's literally you pay as, as you go and there could be competitors. It would be much less monopolistic inherently than government is. So I, I of course, I'm taking a, a very free market perspective and in today's world, like the word capitalism, that's such a bad word. And the problem with a lot of these other philosophies out there is that they, they, they preach like egalitarian um, ideals, like we need, to, we need to help the less privileged. And these are all very important, compassionate ideas. And I understand the impulse behind them, like things like socialism. The problem is that all these philosophies end up encroaching upon people's private property, initiating aggression. It's like if it's more socialistic or communistic, it's, well, we are the entity running society and therefore we get to allocate where the property goes. You don't get to fully own it, but it's for the good, greater good. It's, we're being compassionate. It's a really, like, it's a very, it's a pretty devious type of philosophy when you really think about it, because then you don't fully own, we don't, you don't own your stuff. And unless you agree to that beforehand, like if you wanted to engage in voluntary socialism, for example, where you agree beforehand as a community, we are going to give up a part of our property. That's just part of being a member. If you voluntarily sign up for that, I'm like all for it because then it's not an invasion of your property. It's what you're voluntarily doing. And that's the distinction I think is often lost because the government's doing stuff and it's not voluntary. We haven't explicitly agreed to all the stuff. It's like an implicit agreement and our private property rights are going away. And that can include our own, our money. We don't have rights to, to what we own. 
those are really great points. And it reminds me of Klaus Schwab and, you know, his whole slogan of uh, you will own nothing and be happy. And when you look at these people and their books and their writings coming from the World Economic Forum and all these people with absolutely immense influence, you know, if you were a billionaire, what you could do, what, what I could do as a billionaire, even to, let's say, one province in Canada, I could buy up so much land. You know, there, there's so much influence I could have with that wealth. And I feel like that's what what's happening here is we have these people that have uh, immense wealth and people aren't re- understanding the power they wield with that. And I had one friend who uh, is a multimillionaire and um, he has a friend who's a billionaire and he, he was talking to his friend who's a billionaire and he said, uh, what's the difference between a multimillionaire and a billionaire? And his friend told him that when you make a billion dollars, you better bring your harpoon gun. And I was like, what does that mean? You know, basically saying like, this is a whole nother world, right? You start to, you start to play in, in, in real worlds of influence here. And so uh, this is something that a smaller community might need to correct if that institution or that agenda or that intention doesn't have your good in mind. Right. And then, but, but it's really connecting to the government these days, right. With lobbying and and how you could buy someone out. And when you look at the confessions of an economic hitman and what they're able to do in poorer countries, um, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but it's kind of what they've done. You know, they, when I was looking at why we had war and starvation, well, I'm like, well, why do they have starvation for? Well, it turns out if you keep a country poor, real easy to take the resources, you know, then you put somebody in power that says, you know what, we want to have a great community here and we want to get a strong middle class and all this and that. Well, you know, if that guy starts doing that, you can just shoot him in the face or you can bribe him. Well, bribe him first. But if that doesn't work, then you can shoot him in the face after. And we've had a lot of assassinations this last um, bunch of years. And there's been assassinations in, you know, the health community as well. So th- this isn't a, you know, I'm kind of getting off a tangent. But have you heard of uh, the work of Michael Tellinger in the Ubuntu movement? I've heard of his work. I don't know too much about that movement though. Okay. So it's kind of, it's, it's not the same of what, as what you're suggesting. It is the idea of how to grow a community where everybody benefits. Right. And we're, what we're talking about are these frameworks and what you're, what you're coming up here with is, is I think really good. And I want to continue on with it, but just to say that you're looking at the best worldview because right now our politics is left versus right. But if you've got somebody on top, if I own both Coke and Pepsi, if I own both uh, McDonald's and Burger King, and I'm not giving you an actual solution, that's going to give you energy and vibrance. You know, it's, it's not that helpful. We need to, we need to look at the root of it. And we also need to test these things. So the Ubuntu framework, I think is powerful. And I think what you're suggesting here is also powerful and actually doable. And so uh, you can either comment in, on my rant there, or I'd love to move into the uh, the metaphysics related to politics and ec- economics. Yeah, I'll comment on a few things. You made some really good points. So with regard to, I don't know the specifics of the Ubuntu movement that he's working on, but I think with the framework that I'm discussing here, known as voluntarism, you could have different types of communities that can try different things. So I think there's compatibility even without knowing exactly what he's up to, because if people are voluntarily want to try a community like that, I'm saying go off, go for it. And maybe since we're all different puzzle pieces, there are different types of communities that are going to be best for each of us. We don't know what those are going to be like. So I, I love that general idea. As long as there's people are not initiating aggression, that's the key, which is what our government inherently does. But also I wanted to address this idea of, of like wealthy individuals and corporations. Um, 
I think all of those things can be huge problems. And the argument that I make is that those problems are compounded when you have the structure of the state as we do it now. That it's a that it be, the state becomes a vehicle for corporations and wealthy individuals to enact power over many, many people because they can effectively, with a law change that they can fund, uh, they can, we're seeing it all, all over the world now. You can shut, you can lock down a whole country. So that's, so one of the counter, I mentioned this because some people will say, well, Mark, if there's no actual government, even if you have the same services, then you're not gonna have like someone watching over and these corporations are so evil. So to me, like someone becoming rich or a corporation doing really well is not inherently evil because if they're doing it through voluntary exchanges, it means they're providing a good or a service that someone is willingly paying for and they deserve to be compensated for that. So as long as there's no coercion involved, there's nothing like spiritually wrong with it. And there's this like such negativity against anyone who's wealthy or any corporations like they're automatically evil. It's possible that some of them are, but I think there needs to be a recontextualization because if you're provide, there needs to be incentives for people to provide uh, good goods and services in a really positive way. Government doesn't have that incentive because the government's going to exist no matter what. And in a free market, you have incentives and that spawns innovation. And I saw this firsthand in my profession that when you have lots of people competing against each other, that can lead to positive things. When you take away competitive dynamics, it actually is going to take away from the, the way society can grow. Well, wow, man. Yeah, I love that. And I agree. And the way that you stated it there, again, it, it goes back to exactly what's going on right now, the state becoming a vehicle for corporations. Or when I gave the framework of law, you know, creator gave the rights to man, man created government, government created corporations. While you look now, you have these corporations mandating and coercing a product. Right. And then now, right. now, and that's trying to take over a free will, whether we want the product or not, whether it's a good product or not, if we don't want it and they're mandating and coercing, use every tactic possible so that we must take this product in a, in a way that um, is very coercive, then that's probably not ideal. And that's the issue we're having. So what you're suggesting in your framework is, is a way to prevent that, but also at the same time, like you said, recontextualizing what wealth is, because if it's if it's a different system, uh, like uh, what is it, Patagonia? You know what I mean? Doing good business the right yeah. way. They were going to go out of business, but they made the right moves. Um, you know, and now their business is thriving. That's good. Everybody is down with that. The problem is when you get so big and these co companies have so so much power, they start to do coercive and manipulative things um, to then harm others or to uh, block out the market or to prevent anybody else from growing. And so it needs to be. Uh, yeah, finding. So what do you find the solution to that being like a Walmart not taken over or these big corporations not, you know, because if they if it's voluntary and you're harming yourself, I guess that's OK. Um, but it's probably not going to happen without coercion or manipulation or some other um, factor involved with that. Yeah, well, of course, it's impossible to know exactly how things will play out. But the, the, the theoretical idea is that if companies start doing bad stuff to their employees, then that would then the people aren't going to want to work there as much and people might start boycotting the product so in a free market you could have competitors that emerge if it's actually a free market if you don't have a government that's getting involved and in, in making the rules um, the problem with government making the rules is that uh, to quote pj o'rourke he said i'm paraphrasing here he said when buying and selling are controlled by legislation the first things to be bought and sold are legislators so all you have to do is buy the politicians and you can change the business landscape. Uh, but if you don't have that dynamic, it's a truly a free market and you start doing bad stuff as an employer, 
then that would be an incentive for other employers to say, no, we're going to be, we're going to treat our employees well. And then, then that company, the one that's doing bad stuff, they're going to lose employees. So to me, like the free market will, will balance things out theoretically. Yeah, I think so too. And it, it makes me think about diversity, right? Because if you only have one choice that takes away freedom, right? That's what they want to do yeah. with communism or, you know, a simple thing, like which gym I want to go to, like, uh, you know, Canada gave, I don't know, whatever bailout to good life gym. So what if there's only one gym I need to go to in order to get to that gym? Um, you know, I have to go through these hoops. There's no diversity, there's no free market and there's no choice. There's no vote with your time and with your energy. And then the market can adapt to what the people want. And usually what people want is evolution. What people want is freedom is growth. And you're going to be catering to those things. You know, I feel like the negative side of humanity where we're wanting these things that might not be so great are they come from trauma uh, misdirection unfulfillment and also a lot of coercion right you look at uh, tv and and i i did a lot of study on uh, psychological operations and propaganda and things like that and just to see the influence of movies the the influence of media and shows and what it's portraying it's not it's not doing it in a way that is um inspiring positive change within the individual and how they navigate this world and how they, again, the worldview and the framework. So um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the metaphysics and, you know, how that relates to politics and economics right there at that chapter, all the, you know, all the people going through like, Oh God, Oh no, no, no. I can't wait even say metaphysics, but I'm sure you're gonna be able to frame it in a way whether if, if they're a little bit open-minded, they're going to get some value from it. Yeah. Well, when I say metaphysics, I'm talking about this idea, one mind, one consciousness, the reality of psychic phenomena, the reality that consciousness continues after the death of the body. So what I'm trying to do is to say, well, like in the, for my second book, I said, well, how should we live life? How should we orient our compass and set an overall intention if we accept that we live as part of one consciousness or whirlpools within a stream? The same question exists for how we should structure society optimally. If that's true, metaphysically, that we're all interconnected and we have the, we're having this experience, we have amnesia and don't remember all of it, then how should we structure society? And to me, it comes down to this non-aggression principle. We can't have it. We can't have an optimally metaphysically aligned society if the basis of the way everything's structured is predicated upon aggression against people's private property. To have a few people who get to say, no, we're we're smart. We know that society should be structured this way, and we're going to inject our opinion here in the economy and here, and we're going to do this kind of stimulus because we know it's best for everyone. It's impossible. No matter how smart or well-intentioned people are, if they're, if they're doing things that are not without the consent of every individual, they're going to be biasing the entire economy and the entire society based upon what they think is best. And to me, from a spiritual perspective, it's a spiritual arrogance because we don't know. How could you even know? How could you know if, if a certain stimulus package is going to be the best for every single person, if, especially if some people don't want that stimulus package? Really, it's what a few people think is the best and their, their theory. So like, that's how I look at everything now is, is through this non-aggression principle, which to me is ultimately liberty. If, if people are not infringing upon your body or your private property, then you are free. And as long as you're not doing that, then you have an opportunity to be out there in the world and not always succeed. So part of what we're here to do, I think, is to evolve. And that means making mistakes. And that means taking risks sometimes and taking risk on your own accord. And what we're seeing now is that basically a few people are deciding, no, this is the risk that everyone's going to take. We're going to determine your risk preferences for you. You can't leave your house because we have determined 
but that's not okay. Rather than letting people and businesses decide those things for themselves. Because metaphysically to me, that's, that's very much improper. It's, it's in many ways evil to not allow a person to take their own risk. Yeah, man. Again, I love all that. And I think that you, you've nailed it. Um, you know, one of the quotes that's been very helpful for me for the last couple of years in wanting to do good and say, okay, there's two points of view. How do I know if I'm doing something that's positive or that's right? Or I'm on, you know, everyone thinks they're on the right side, right? Like, oh, and you have this divide and you, and, you know, I feel like there's a clear answer to what the, the right and good side is. However, this quote is the one that really helped me understand that. And it says, anything that seeks to restrict or bind by definition is Luciferian. And that, again, was from Rudolf Steiner. And so what I'm what I'm doing, and if this is a free will universe or what I'm, you know, doing and navigating my life, I'm not trying to take your freedom of choice away, right? If you are so afraid of what's going on right now, you can stay at home. You can wear a hazmat suit. You can wear nine hazmat suits. But if I, you know, and you can make the argument while me just living my life and I'm killing everybody, if you can show me good proof for that, then I will change my view. But until then, you're going to have to like, you know, I don't know, manage your own fears, right? So if you're afraid of that, then you can wear that hazmat suit. But I can't stay at home forever based on what your view is, right? But I can respect you. I could, I could, you know, when we're in the same space, I can give you respect and honor and dig dignity and all those different things within reason, right? But if you want to dictate my whole entire existence and you want to restrict and bind me based on your beliefs that, you know, you should be able to at least um, present a good argument for, um, right? Because if you could say that, if you come over to my house and say, Matt, turns out you're the most uh, deadly man in the whole world. And uh, every time you go out, you murder a thousand people. I'd be like, oh shit, no way. And so, <laughs> and so if you show me good proof that I'm like, damn, like that's true. I'm like, okay, how am I going to mitigate that? Because I'm a good and honorable person, right? But what, what people are doing, you know, is, is restricting and binding people's movement, their freedom of speech, uh, the way that they live, their businesses. And so it should be up to them, you know, those choices. And if people want to go into that business or not go into that business, that's up to them. They also get to exercise that free will choice. So I feel like um, that quote was very helpful for me. Just understand, I, I want to empower people. I want to give them more freedom. I want to give them more power, you know, uh, in, in all the ways that I can right? And not, not restrict or bind in any way. And to me, that's, um, that comes with risk, just like snowboarding, you know, it's, it's risky just to strap on a snowboard and go down a big, huge mountain. Uh, it's a risk to, to do a backflip. It's a risk to do, you know, a 70 foot jump, but I get to do, I get to manage that risk with my ability, my free will, my intent, um, and my, uh, experience for life. It's a risk to go on a plane, to even go meditate and, and be in a foreign country and all the stuff you don't know what's going on there. What if you get robbed? What if you get killed, right? You get to manage that risk to enjoy our planet, to see the things, to maybe eat food that makes you sick. It happens, but you know, you want to, you want to go and you want to um, explore that and make that choice for yourself. So that's my rant. You want to add on to it? Yeah. Well, <laughs> as you were talking, I was thinking about like the way certain businesses will, will have different rules, um, especially with regard to everything that's happening right now. And the way I look at that is a, a private business can do what it wants. The problem is when the government comes in and tells the businesses what they have to do, even if they don't want to. So it's like you on your private property, you can have your rules and someone can voluntarily agree or not agree to 
engage with that private property. So let's say you don't, let's say there's a store that mandates something that you don't want, then just, then you don't go into that store. And then the business is going to have to deal with the consequences of that, that it might lose business of people that aren't going to come into their store anymore because of their rules. So that's, I'm all for like letting businesses do what they want to do as long as they're not initiating aggression, but they can have their rules. Private property owners can have their rules and the market will organize itself where people think those are crazy rules or something horrible, then they're going to go in a different direction. Yep. I a hundred percent agree. And it's a great way to, um, you know, let people decide for themselves, right? Let people, right. Because with, with everything that's going on now, right. If you're worried, um, well, you could have, a certain restaurant that's so safe and you are in a cubicle that's air ventilated and all that kind of stuff. And that can be your choice and you can choose that. Or if you're a little bit of a risky guy, you could go out like in, in Canada, we're just like locked down the whole way. Right. But you go down to Texas and people are just going outside. Like it's no business. You know, they're, they're getting on sports events. They're probably hugging and high-fiving. You know, I'm, I'm a risky guy. I might, I might want to take that risk. You know, I, I don't want a, the government telling me I got to stay at home again and don't go outside because somehow it's worse here. It's, uh, you know, it's taking my, my freedom away so we, we can navigate. And that's what's happening now with these mass exodus of these different states and people. People are moving to and making their choice with how they live and where they're going to go within the states of the United, the United States. But not every other country has that option. So they've kind of got to figure it out within their system. And that's a testament to the United States and the system you have to have these checks and balances that still will provide a little bit of freedom where in, in Canada, the way our government works is once uh, Trudy um, kind of makes one blanket say, and I always call him Trudy. Now, once my buddy did, I was like, that's hilarious. That's all I'm going to call him. Um, makes a blanket statement. We all get that, right? There's there, our provinces don't really exercise the same amount of freedom that uh, you guys get to in the States. And so that's why I'm confident that, you know, when I look from the war perspective and all the things that I've seen, they always talked about the United States as this home for freedom. And now I'm understanding that more and more and how that government system set up. So now when we take the old and we institute some of these new ideas, so what's happening now is corrected and doesn't happen again. Um, this is how we really improve upon a system. So with your last uh, section here, you talk about um, the path to true liberty. And I'd love for you to uh, finish with a, a few comments on that. Sure. Well, the way I describe it in simple terms is, that we need to spiritualize our lives and get the government out of our lives. Those are the two basic steps. And the term that I use in the book, I use the term non-dual, which just means one consciousness. It's used in a lot of spiritual traditions. So I, I call it non-dual voluntarism. Voluntarism is this voluntary society. So basically what I've tried to do is create a, what I'm calling a metaphysical political framework, um, because you could be, you could be completely anti-spiritual and still want to be in a voluntary society, which just means you're going to have a different outlook in life. And I think it would be more prone to potential corruption because you're not going to have that spiritual uh, sense of natural law and like life review and that sort of thing. But um, my point is that there's most of political theory is, is regarded on just a, like either you're right or left or you want some version of a state or you want a completely stateless society and that's it. To me, it's you need that, but then you also need the metaphysical part of it and where do people fall in that spectrum. So I think as we're moving forward and looking at how should we ideally structure this new earth that we seem to be moving into, and I hope it's going to hope we're going to get there in a positive way. Um, it's, it will need to be one that's much more spiritual, that we're aware of our spiritual nature and where government, as we have structured it currently, needs to go away. We need to have many more of our liberties, even if in the interim, it means that, that governments have fewer ways of, of initiating aggression. That's the way we have to move.
least in my opinion. Well, I definitely agree. And I like how you have kind of combined so many important elements to, to provide a framework that makes logical sense and also spiritual sense, you know, um, you know, in the Eastern cultures are talking about yin yang or masculine feminine, um, you know, logical, emotional, or creative. We, we need both of these in play to have a holistic system. Right. And then to take and, and look at some of these principles. And like, we've talked about these frameworks or these world views or political views, right. It's like, well, if you want to sign up for a, a view that's authoritarianism and one person gets to dictate everything, you're welcome to do that, but maybe try it in a small spot where everyone else who wants that can go over there. Uh, you want to try something else that gives people the option to move over here and people can vote with their time and their energy. And as we do that, this will allow for natural selection in the way that the systems that are more aligned to natural law, to harmony, to quality of life, to freedom, to fulfillment, to prosperity, to kindness, uh, compassion, and all the beautiful attributes of what it is to be human, those systems are going to grow and evolve and people will want to participate in them. And what's happening, I think right now is globally, we have the opposite of that. Right. And it's coming more and more instructing, more and more binding and a solution needs to be had because, um, you know, it's just becoming too much for those who don't align with those principles to bear. And I feel like that's what the great opportunity is, is a realignment, a reimagining, a reparticipation. And, you know, government is participation. Right. You can we can hold our our. Uh, politicians accountable we as the community can create something you know new and better immediately and all that takes is a little bit of cooperation right he's like no we're not going to do that so who's going to enforce it nobody's going to enforce it okay at all because it's all people wearing different costumes right and claiming you know authority which really doesn't exist at the end of the day it's yeah. mostly it's mostly people right so people deciding amongst themselves what's most important and uh what they want to vote for, what they find valuable, and then working towards that as a community. Um, yeah. So you want to want to comment on that? Yeah. Well, I think to sum it up, what what we've both been alluding to is is a shift in consciousness. That if we all start to become aware of what it really means for us to be free and spiritual beings, then I think it opens things up. We don't know how how that's even going to manifest metaphysically. Like what happens when someone shifts their consciousness and realizes, wait a second, I'm not completely free. I'm under somewhat of a dictatorship, even though I've been told I'm free. I really don't have rights to all my private property. And taxation is pretty coercive. Just having that mental shift in our own mind, I think will make us less tolerant of, of, of where we're being stepped on. And who knows what a critical mass would be. But that's why I have these conversations like I'm having with you and, and write books. And because you don't, to me, it's all about a shift in consciousness, especially if all of reality is just consciousness and we're all whirlpools within the stream. It's like, how many of these whirlpools do you need to shift their compass in a different direction where we could have a world where there isn't so much corruption and there's much more liberty? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that what you've written out here as a framework is brilliant and the invitation to analyze the worldview that's the big thing to begin with right we don't we don't take stock of the worldviews we hold on anything and when we do that and we look at the systems in place you really uncover some things often that are not in alignment with your values or you know the way that you would see them going and, and unfortunately it's 
kind of sad, right? It's just like, oh man, that's not what I thought it was. It's kind of like the Wizard of Oz, you know, that's not what I thought it was. It's a lot different. And so if we can take the time to assess our systems, reimagine them, and then once we build something that, or, or create a new framework, we can go try and build it. We can uh, improve upon it, but the idea is going to be our participation and our free will choice, not creating reality by default where, oh, the government's just going to do this or my reality is this. So that's what I'm going to do. It's no, let's consciously engage in this. Let's figure out what's the best for everybody in the holistic sense, but it doesn't take away. We, we have all these other basic principles, right? You can't go harm someone. You can't, you know, go take their property. And then how do we work together? Because people are going to want to volunteer and work together in a framework framework like that. So um, this has been really wonderful, man. Um, where can people find more about you and get your book, which I would invite people to get and put on all the coffee tables for every American possible. Um, hopefully this will bridge the gap for both sides. I know it seems to me that there's a certain certain groups of people are becoming more and more defensive and they don't want to discuss anything. And I feel like that's a, that's always a dangerous uh, ideology and philosophy because it is the, uh, the debate and the conversation and the respect of one another that allows for truth and solutions to arise. And, um, you know, we want to honor the, the higher truth, the pursuit of truth, you know, doesn't, it's an evolution. It's not a finite thing right? It can continuously evolve. And so I feel like that's really important. And maybe this book will give a lot of people, uh, you know, the opportunity to open their mind a little bit to say, okay, you know, maybe we can improve this thing a little bit. Yeah. Well, that's my hope. Thank you, Matt. I, I write books and I never know who's going to read them or what impact it's going to have, but I, I'm trying to put the ideas out there. Um, so my books are, all of them are, are available on Amazon. You can hear me, Matt? Yeah, you, there you go. Yep. Can you hear me? Okay, good. Sorry. Cut out for a second. My books are available on Amazon. First one's called An End to Upside Down Thinking, then An End to Upside Down Living, and the most recent one, An End to Upside Down Liberty. My podcast called Where Is My Mind is on all the major podcast players, Apple, Spotify, everywhere else. And my website is my name, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com, markgober.com, and that's where you can find out more. Awesome. Well, this has been great. I'm so glad that you've written this book. I think it's going to help a lot of people. I think it it invites at least the invitation to looking at the worldview of how our structures work. And uh, oh, you can't hear me now. Um, okay. Can you hear me? No. Okay. You're going to have to, uh, <laughs> Mark can't hear me, but I'm going to close it out. Thanks so much, Mark, for coming. I appreciate you guys. Um, check out his book, check out his work. Uh, he's in a phenomenal guy. So uh, buy the book for a friend. This is a great book to send your political buddy. So thanks everybody for watching and we'll see you in the next episode. Peace. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the absolutely phenomenal Mark Gober. I hope that you enjoyed this episode and please share it as far and as wide as you can. Write it in a blog, share it in messages, share it on your Facebook, share it everywhere you can. This conversation is so important and Mark is incredibly brilliant. The way he breaks things down so that you can really analyze what things are. Like how often do we even think about what the government actually is, how it works, where it gets its authority from. We need to really uh, reanalyze our systems of government and see what 
is going on here? And the United States has, uh, of all the places in the world, the most, uh, the best system. And we can really upgrade that system, whether it's, um, you know, analyzing it, uh, holding people accountable, um, upgrading things, destroying it if necessary. But we first need to analyze what is going on. How do we get to where we are today? And where do we want to go as a community, uh, as a country, whatever country you are, and as a species, uh, men and women of, of, you know, planet Earth, where do we want to go? So this is our great opportunity, the great awakening. And uh, I appreciate Mark. So please get his book and share it far and wide and very, uh, as you can see, passionate and adamant about his message and how he shares it. And what a great, uh, remarkable person who has integrity and high intelligence to share this message far and wide in a very beautiful way. So please support Mark and his work. Uh, Leave a review on his book, get his book, buy it for your friends and get it out there. It's very, very important. So thank you guys so much for listening to this. Um, As again, share it as far and as wide as you can. Please leave a review on iTunes if you can. Um, If you want to donate, go to mattbelair.com and join the membership uh, by donation. If you need it for free, just hit me up. Happy to just give you that for free. No problem. Um, Any other way you want to support the show, you can do donations and things like that. It's helpful because they delete my Patreon. They're they're deleting everything. They're making it frustrating, but I am not going to stop. It's only going to, you know, keep me going. So, uh, but your support is very appreciated. I will tell you that. So, you know, if you guys want to contact me, um, have any questions, any suggestions, Matt at zenathlete.com. I highly recommend everybody go through the quantum heart hypnosis stuff. Check that out. It's on my website as well. They're so powerful and the soul compass is so powerful. So anything that's on there is very reasonably priced. And if you can't afford it, just hit me up. I will give it to you for free. I do not give a crap. I just want you to experience this because I know how effective and how powerful this training is. And we need people connected to their hearts, their minds, their souls to creator God, however you see. So we get, however you see that, so we can um, build this solution together. And that's all that's required is to let go of fear, connect to the creator God spirit, um, the unified force in all things that we are a part of and uh, build the solution. That is it. So I appreciate and love each and every one of you. Have an amazing day. Let's come into a state of peace and coherence before we close this out. Wherever you are in the world to stop what you're doing, take in a deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath and let it out slowly, filling every cell, every muscle, and every fiber of your being with peace, joy, contentment, enthusiasm, inspiration, courage, fulfillment, connection, and get ready to enjoy the rest of your day. So thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.